You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Here's the thing about gay archetypes, like gay sex archetypes gay erotic archetypes they're never as hot in reality as they are in the porn or the fantasy or the tom of finland drawings i think uh, uh, at this moment of construction workers specifically because our building here where we record the savage love cast in the washington mutual building in beautiful downtown seattle is crawling with construction workers because the floor right under us is being gutted and torn out and chopped up and they're throwing blocks of cement into wood chippers and destroying them both, the blocks of cement and the wood chippers, uh, and me and all the tech savvy at risk youth. We have migraines, and you may have a migraine after listening to this week's installment of the Savage Lovecast because you will probably hear some bizarre hammering, thumping background noise, and we apologize for that. But shoving through this crowd of construction workers outside our building every day uh, for the last few weeks, last few months, has really gotten me thinking about those, you know, those gay archetypes. You think about the, the, the kinds of guys, like cliche straight guys, masculine, macho guys that gay guys are supposed to be into. I'm not, personally. And it's always, you know, firemen, truckers, cops, construction workers, the uh, the full sort of village people smorgasbord. And they're all sort of sexy in theory, but then you meet them in person and they're just average. All of them average. And average is sexy too. A lot of these guys are, as they say, unconventionally attractive, but attractive still. A lot of them are bears. A lot of them would really appeal to some of my friends who are into bears. But none of them look like they could go from this construction site to the porn shoot and back and get away with it. And the same thing about sailors. You know, we live in Seattle. We do the show here in Seattle. And the fleet comes in and the sailors pour into downtown Seattle. And they don't look anything like the sailors in the Tom of Finland drawings. They just don't. They look like folks who haven't been getting very much exercise or seeing very much sunlight for the last six months at sea. They look a little sallow and they look like they need to walk it off, all the deep fried food. And they do. I always think about this disparity between the cops, truckers, firemen, construction workers that so many gay men, so many sort of cliche, standard issue, fantasy receiving gay men are home jacking off about all the time. But then you go out into the real world and you see them in the wild and they don't look anything like they look in porn. But you know what? Neither do the school teachers and the cheerleaders and all the archetypes that are in the porn for straight folks either. Anyway, that's all I got for the top of the show today because it's really, as I sit here with my migraine in the studio, all I can think about is the construction noise and the construction workers causing it. And I don't even have the sort of benefit of them being eye candy because them ain't. They're just construction workers. Average every day, salt of the earth, probably awesome in bed and folks are into them, but... Not porn stars. And I think if someone's going to ruin my day, if someone's going to make me listen to them jackhammer all afternoon, they should at least be hot. I guess that's unfair, but there it is. And now your calls. Hi, I'm a 25-year-old straight female in a large southwestern city. I have a conundrum. Um, I've been seeing this guy for about two months, and I knew that he... I've just gotten out of a two-year relationship earlier in the same month that we happened to meet. So I knew that it was probably not the greatest time to get serious, and I talked to him about taking it slow, 
Um, but he's really attentive, texts me in the morning when I wake up at night before I go to sleep, always telling me how great and beautiful I am and amazing. He wanted me to spend a whole weekend with him pretty much every night. He's like, oh, can you come back to my house? So he's not taking it slow. So we've been seeing each other a lot for the last two months, a lot, a lot. And um, he talked to me about getting rid of my fuck buddies last week. And I thought that that meant exclusivity. Well, I kind of brought it up, but I was just trying to fish and he encouraged me to get rid of them. And the reason I brought it up is his ex-girlfriend of two years is coming to visit him this weekend. They planned this trip in June before we met. He says that, you know, even though things change and he didn't expect to be even getting mildly serious with someone, she is a friend and they were together for two years and that means something and he wouldn't go back on his word to a friend. So she is going to be staying with him in his studio apartment for four days. She doesn't have a car. She doesn't have any other friends in town. And basically all I wanted him to say to me is I won't fuck her because he wanted me to get rid of my fuck buddies and... Um, we've been spending so much time together. All I wanted him, so I, I basically, I cornered him about it. And I said, are you going to fuck her or not? And he said, I just don't know. I might. And I said, well, I can't. You might? That's not good enough. And he said, well, she's going to be in my house for four days. Yeah, which apparently means he's just going to, like, trip and fall into her pussy. It's inevitable. There's no way around it. So I gave him his marching orders and just said, peace. Then, you know, that's not good enough for me. And I'm feeling really conflicted about it because he's still been texting me saying, you know, it's too soon. You're overreacting. We don't need to be exclusive. And this is just this one weekend. It's just a pity fuck. I'm sure you know it's a pity fuck. I'd rather be fucking you. I spend all my time with you, blah, 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 whatever. So, Dan, I'm just wondering if you think if I overreacted or not. Let me know. Stay strong or give him another chance after this supposedly last ever weekend with his ex-girlfriend of two years is over. My refrigerator has been in my house for seven years and I've never fucked it. The, 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 the idea that because she's going to be in his apartment for four days, he can't help but fuck her, that logic is a little fucked itself. That said – you know, initially you sort of rolled it out as he asked me to get rid of my fuck buddies and it sounds more like you volunteered to get rid of your fuck buddies. You raised the subject of fuck buddies uh, in this kind of passive backing into it way to suss him out on exclusivity instead of just being direct and, and saying let's be sexually exclusive. I have some fuck buddies for you. This is really awesome. I'm willing to end those fuck buddy relationships on the condition that you also end whatever fuck buddy relationships you have lined up with other people including your ex and her imminent visit of four can't-help-but-fucker days. But you weren't really entirely direct. You were a little sort of roundabout. But now you're being direct. You've laid it on the table and said, if you fuck her while she's here, uh, it's over between us. Um, and, and now he gets to decide what he's going to do with his dick while his ex is in his apartment. And you were right. Uh, to lay your chits down. You were right to call the question. You were right to make that demand. You were right to end this relationship for the time being to put it into suspended animation while he figures out what's more important to him, sticking his dick in his ex on her four-day visit or pursuing this new thing he has with you. And if his ex is at all loving and supportive uh, of him and their new lives separate from each other and any new relationships they might be entering into, he should be able to say to her, you know, I thought when we made this 
plan that maybe we could have NSA, fuck buddy, friends, old time sex. But I'm seeing somebody now and she doesn't want me to have sex with anybody else. So happy to host you. Happy to be a good Airbnb guy for you. But I'm not going to stick my dick in you. And then she can decide whether she wants to come. If the only reason she's coming is for sex, then she can back out. But if she's coming for other reasons and just using him and his apartment and she had hoped his dick also while during her visit, uh, maybe she'll come anyway and you'll have to trust him when he says that he didn't stick his dick into her. But I guess I'm hemming and hawing a little bit because two months is a little early really perhaps in many relationships among young people to call the question around exclusivity. It may be that you called the question a little too soon and a little too defensively. All that said, it really does seem like you may be making a mountain out of a molehill here. You like him. He likes you. Uh, he just got out of this relationship that was having sort of a protracted, potentially messy end and, and began to see you. He had a commitment in his own head to to host and fuck his ex-girlfriend during her visit to pity fuck the shit out of her. Maybe she's super horny and maybe she's not getting laid. Maybe it's been a while for her and this whole thing had been set up so that they could have some friendly sex and he feels like a cad somehow backing out of that. Uh, but you know, you have a right to say, I don't want that to happen. And then he can sit with that and he can think about it. And he can think about whether while she's in his house for four days, he is required to fuck her, even though he hasn't fucked his stove. And that's been in his house for a lot longer. Uh, and, and make his choices. And then once she's gone and out of the picture again, you guys can pick up where you left off. And he will tell you that he didn't fuck her. And that might be true. But you really won't have a way of verifying that for sure. And then you know, maybe 10, 15 years down the road, you guys will be on MDMA somewhere having fun and you'll look at him and say, you fucked her, didn't you? And he'll say, yeah, I did. And you'll say, oh, no big deal. Clearly your heart was with me and your dick was with her for a minute very early in our relationship, two months in, eight weeks in, which is you know before most people these days go exclusive. And so I'm going to retroactively – Round that up to not a big deal and then give him a kiss and celebrate your 15th anniversary together and fuck the shit out of him. Hello, my name is Tyler and uh, I have had questions about physics in relation to a certain aspect of sex. Now, I've heard on the internet a number of times from a number of sources that the speed of ejaculation in males uh, that, that semen ejects from the penis is at 28 miles per hour. Now, this, although impressive, this has been cited so many times, and, and you would think that it may be reliable, I traced it back to a single source from, from the uh, legitimate institute, the, the Kinsey Institute. I have not found the original study for this, so I do not believe it, and I have done some, some simple calculations of my own. And 28 miles per hour as an ejection point would be enough speed to allow semen to travel roughly two stories into the air. So, so that you could, uh, if a man was particularly perverted, he could stand on the ground and essentially jerk off and, and have his, his little globule of, of sperm land on a second-story balcony unexpectedly. Now, this seems like the most disgusting of uh, forced entries possible. Um, now, also, for other reference points for the audience, 28 miles per hour would be fast enough that if you angled at a 45-degree angle, it would be able to clear a full city bus worth of distance, roughly 45 to 50 feet. Now, this, this, this doesn't jive with my personal experience in the matter. And I have not had the experience of talking with my male friends. None of them have the experience of every time they've gotten a hand job 
they end up having to squeegee semen from the ceiling. It just doesn't happen. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering, is this, is this a quirk of aerodynamics that I haven't solved, or or is the reported 28 mile per hour muzzle speed, muzzle velocity of semen inaccurate? I wasn't able to find anything about ejaculatory velocity, the speed with which semen exits the head of a man's penis. Uh, online at the Kinsey Institute. I did find it credited to the Kinsey Institute on other websites, but I couldn't find anything at the Kinsey Institute's website, which leads me to believe that maybe you shouldn't believe everything you read on the internet and you shouldn't give credit to every citation you see on the internet because some of them could indeed be bullshit. But you've obviously thought long and hard about this and I think you're hypothesis about city buses and second-story balconies goes pretty far toward disproving this thing that even if it could be proved, so the fuck what? Thank you for your call. Hi, Dan. This is a 40-year-old straight female from a pretty big-sized West Coast city. I have two questions. First one, quick one, what is GGG? I have been listening for about eight months off and on, and I keep hearing you use that phrase or others use the phrase, and I don't know what it means, GGG. haven't heard it defined. Second question. So I'm going to get married next year, have a great relationship with my fiancé, really wonderful. He is very skillful in oral sex and completely I love it, including um, way down about my butt and all around, even to my anus, and sometimes just stimulates me all along there towards my clit and will sometimes even put his tongue inside my anus. I think this is rimming, yes. I have never experienced this before. Pretty vanilla. So here's my question. I completely love this. It's quite amazing. And I would like to return the favor and give the same to him since it's so quite delightful. And I cannot get over my programming that um, okay, how safe is this? How dirty is this? It just, I just am struggling with my squeamishness. So I'm trying to get over it because I really want to share the delight and would like to ask just for some concrete information about, okay, is it actually what is risky? What, what if you I mean, how do you avoid getting contact with feces? Um, if he just goes to the bathroom or takes a shower, is that enough? Or what is some concrete information so that I can help get over this and share with my partner? Joining me here in the studios of the Savage Lovecast on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building in beautiful downtown Seattle is Simon Doonan, creative ambassador at large for Barney's New York, author of six books, columnist for Slate, defiler of White House Christmas trees. You'll have to read his book, Gay Men Don't Get Fat, for the story behind that. And he has a new book out called The Asylum, a collage of couture, reminiscences, and hysteria out now from Blue Binder Press. And I thought this question would be right up your alley because you worked for many, many years in the fashion industry and there's a lot of ass-licking that goes on in the fashion industry. <laughs> there is. It's a, it's a paradox because there is a tremendous amount of ass-licking that goes on. But many people in the fashion industry like myself are phenomenally prissy and share the caller's reticence about rimming. Oh, really? Because you're a gay man. I'm a gay man, but I'm a I'm old school prissy. I thought rimming was gay third base. Well, Jonathan Adler, my 
boyfriend uh, husband? partner husband I thought you, I thought you yes, married we the were man. married Jesus I forgot it gets hard it's, it's hard to ra- like after decades of calling them our boyfriends to suddenly be able to call them our husbands takes yeah, so I, mean, I call mine my husband because I can't make myself say it normally because it doesn't feel normal <laughs> yet but it will in time um, it better hurry up because I'm already soissant, quite <laughs> old. Um, yes, rimming. No, I've always found that a bit terrifying. Um, and, you know, Johnny and I, we like to like put on fur mitts and stroke each other with them, stuff like that. So I share her reticence about it. But let me ask you a question, Dan. Yes. Do you think it's okay if there is some kind of inequality like that? In other words, the guy is like super... Um, high functioning rim, Mr. Rimathon, mm-hmm. but she's like in chiffon with flowers on and a big Blanche Dubois hat, and she's like, um, and saying homie, like, don't play that. And saying things like, I think this is rimming, yes? Yes. Which was just so charming the way she said it. It was almost. French. Um, yeah, I think a little inequality is fine or a little – a lack of reciprocity where there is no uh, mourning on the other person's part for whatever isn't being done for them. There are some people who – you know, there's some relationships where one person's the top, one person's the bottom and that is the, the role they both enjoy and they're t- perfectly content uh, with one person never doing X to the other. Uh, and, and so I don't have a problem with that. You don't have to look at a relationship and say you have to get your pussy eaten just as many times as you suck his dick and vice versa or it's unfair. It's not unfair if you don't pine for anything, if your needs are being met. If he enjoys eating your ass and doesn't particularly care whether or not you eat his, you aren't failing him in any way. He might actually be like uh, horrified once she took off her Blanche Dubois hat and and got down on her knees and like she he might be like what are you doing he might be yeah but you never know until you try <laughs> but it could you know it could be that he, that that he regards rimming as some sort of like ah thing that like caveman the caveman does he's chewing you up he's eating you and if you flipped him over and ate his ass he might have a problem with that yeah he might feel like a big girl's blouse um speaking of big girl's blouses what do you think she's wearing and would you please critique her outfit i see her very much it's um Elizabeth Taylor in Raintree County, mm-hmm. you know, those big 19th century crinolines with a massive hat. And so, yeah, she's, she's definitely um, elaborately I'll rim him tomorrow. Something like that? That's <laughs> yeah. more Scarlett O'Hara. Well, same kind of genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't see her nude. Often. Ever. No. <laughs> so the husband's climb or the boyfriend is climbing under the skirts. Yeah, to eat he that has ass? to get up under her directoire knickers um, and have a go. To answer your question about health risks, there are health risks uh, with oral anal contact. And guess what? It has a wiki page. Go to Google, Google analingus, and up pops the analingus wiki page with a health risk link that you can click and it'll walk you through everything, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, polyamylitis, human papillomavirus, herpes simplex virus, intestinal parasites and all the rest. But uh, a lot of people out there eat butt and are fine. Eat clean butt after the shower and you'll be good. It was something that I have done in the past but I was always drunk and when I stopped <laughs> drinking, then it's funny, the desire to – to um, rim somebody face. just went away with the with the absinthe and the cocktails mm-hmm. disappeared like so much sherry. So I've always wanted to ask a gay guy like you, a gay guy in the fashion world, and we don't have many of them in Seattle, so I really haven't had an opportunity to ask any. If gay guys like me are letting down the side, I own a couple of pairs of tennis shoes, two pairs of jeans. I wear T-shirts that my mother sent me to college with. 
30 years ago and I just don't care what I'm wearing or how I look, which is why I have to live in Seattle because in New York, people – I start to feel like, oh, what am I wearing? I never feel that way in Seattle. Nobody gives a shit what you're wearing in Seattle. But am I a bad gay man? I'll eat ass, Terry's, no one else's, but I won't – I won't go to Barney's and buy clothes. Well, I you're not going to believe this, but I actually I'm not one of those queer eye gay guys that wants everybody to start wearing Jill Sanders suits and Prada shoes and blah blah blah. My whole thing is that people have to look like themselves. So I used to watch that queer eye show completely mystified as to why these gay men were driving around in a van. Um, kidnapping straight men and cutting off their mullets and dressing them up. <laughs> I didn't understand it. What would you do with a straight man if you kidnapped him with five other gay guys in a van besides cut off his mullet? There is nothing I love more than meeting a straight man who is full on Metallica, the got the mullet, he's a bit fat, he drinks beer, loves sports. People should be who they are. And I would say, you know, your mullet, I would grow it a bit longer and let me get you some conditioner for it. I'm not about making everybody look spiffy and preppy. I think people should – fashion and style are personal expression, creative expression. You should just look like yourself and you look like yourself. And how does that work for Barney's then? If you're, incur- you know, I thought the fashion industry is all about making you feel insecure about who you were and and instilling some aspiration to be different or a better version of yourself and having to go buy a five hundred dollar t shirt at Barney's. When the people that run Barney's hear this, they're going to fire me for not <laughs> proselytizing about fashion. But I genuinely believe that you have to look like yourself. Like Phyllis Diller looked like herself. Mm-hmm. Phyllis, do you think she ever got rimmed? Um, yeah, I could see that that fright wig hanging on the end. <laughs> On the end of the bed, you know, on the that thingy at the end of the bed. Having been rimmed right off her body? Yeah. <laughs> and the shock of the tongue going into her anus just popped the wig right off her head? Exactly. Uh, do you know what GGG stands for? Um, I haven't a clue. Good giving and game. And you can Google that too. I, every oh, yeah, time, Frequently that... I get questions from people saying, what does DTMFA mean? It's always in your column. Google it. It pops right up. But good giving and game. What we should be in bed for our partners and what we have a right to expect our partners to be for us. Good. Have some skills. Giving. Sometimes you give pleasure without an expectation of immediate return on that pleasure. Um, and game. Sort of up for anything. Like maybe rimming but within reason. You're not required to do anything for your partner that leaves you curled up in the fetal position on the floor sobbing afterwards, which is why I don't have to wear a suit because that's what wearing a suit and a tie does to me. You would actually look great in a suit, but if you've no inclination to wear one, that would be silly. A leopard jumpsuit, that's a whole other story. Terry can pull that sort of shit off. I can't. <laughs> you've met my husband. Oh, and I love how flamboyant he's become. He's the, he's the Liberace of Seattle. He looks so fabulous in all the color and – but I think you know that's very much a reflection of who he is right now. He it it's is. a flamboyance and a like hello. This stage of life, he can pull off that rhinestone cape completely. He looks great. Hey Dan, longtime listener, and I just have a question about trying to negotiate a different sort of relationship. I'm a 26 year old. I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I've been a dominatrix on and off for six years. And I'm still young and have a lot of debt from school and I'm trying to negotiate a relationship that would benefit me and a submissive. I'm interested in a total power exchange. I'm interested in a 24-7 live-in situation where I would live in with somebody and control them while they're at home and that would be my payment for room, board, etc. I'm also interested in obtaining my private pilot's license and 
possibly having a submissive that owned a plane or had access to one and I could use um, session time as an exchange for fly time. This is just me trying to barter and trying to be positive about what my skills are and what I have to offer. And I really don't know where to go about finding people who might be interested in this, who finding people who are actually worth my time. I've had a lot of people who are wasting my time, actually, on certain websites and things like that. So any advice on, um, A, like how to find people, and B, like tips for negotiating um, this type of relationship, because I'm sure that there are people out there who would be interested in this, but I don't have any experience with negotiating like that. So I'm just going to let you handle this one on your own. Well, this was this was an incredible fashion experience for me because initially I heard like CZ Guest, you know, this very manicured socialite with a beautifully tailored tweed skirt and a twin set. You That's know, what you imagined the caller was wearing. The caller was wearing a, you know, a sweater set, pearls, a tailored tweed skirt and very circumspect. Then she said about being a dominatrix and suddenly I'm Betty Page, you know, Betty Page Village mm-hmm. I'd gone to. Then the the aviation theme came in and we were Amelia Earhart, you know, with the leather cap and the goggles and everything. So I'm still reeling from the from – the, she's a whole lot of people. She contains multitudes. That's what I thought. It came to me as I sat there listening to her. This woman contains multitudes. People are more than just – uh, their day job or the, the sex acts that interest them or the sex act they're willing to perform for money. She's a student. She's got a degree. She's got student loans to pay off. She's been a dominatrix. She'd like to have a 24-7 total power exchange live-in relationship as a barter thing so that she can become a pilot. I, I think it's kind of beautiful. It's creative. It's extraordinary. I would worry that she'd end up like on a Sunday evening. They're both sitting there in rubber cat suits, and she's doing Sudoku, and he's watching Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> like it could get. That's where it always ends up. Those total power exchange BDSM twenty four seven relationships. It always devolves towards Sudoku. Anything gets boring after long enough. Yeah, I would think after three weeks, wouldn't it? I would give it. Three weeks of power exchange. And We're no going to hear from people in total power exchange relationships who are very angry and once they get let out of their cages, they will write us angry emails about uh, – are disparaging their, their lifestyle because it can be fascinating all the time for 24 hours Oh, a day. well, then so I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that it, that it can be that. That's incredible. Actually, I didn't – knew somebody who lived in San Francisco in an apartment building and there was a man that lived on the third floor, a woman that lived on the seventh floor and every night she would put on a tight skirt and a – ball gag and go up and bring him his dinner and they were that way for years wow. so it can be a wonderful enduring exchange of power and maybe Sudoku doesn't come into the picture well this the problem for this woman though is she's looking for something very 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 specific very finely thinly sliced not just for a guy who's a submissive but for a guy who's a submissive who wants basically a sugar baby relationship with a dom where he supports her and pays her and gives her money uh, in exchange for this BDSM DS attention from her. Just for any of you who are curious, there's actually construction going on on the floor right below us here in the Washington Mutual Building, beautiful downtown Seattle. Uh, so if you hear a little bit of noise around the edges, um, that's construction. That strange buzzing is not my post-quiche flatulence. <laughs> you had quiche for lunch, seriously? Simon? I did at this at this very um, Seattle-esque place down the street called Pity Rosy or something. Pity Rosa, it's delicious. There's a plug for Petty Rosa. So anyway, the, the, 
The problem for her is she's looking for something very specific, not just for a sub guy, but a sub guy who's interested in total power exchange 24-7, which not all sub guys are, and then also is interested in a sugar baby relationship where he's going to pay her bills and support her and give her room and board. And then he also has to own an airplane. That guy may be out there, caller, but the, the you know, you're gonna have to work hard to find that particular guy. Maybe there's a sub guy out there who would like to have you live with him free of charge in exchange for TPE, uh, but he doesn't own an airplane. You may have to compromise. Um, the 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 pushback that you're getting this early in your search is just because the person you're looking for is rare, and so your search is going to be frustrating and long, but not impossible. I bet the guy is out there for you. Might not own an airplane, but. My money's on the caller because she's already irate that people have been wasting her time. This girl is determined. She's going to get there. My money's on her. Mine too. Hey, Dan. A uh, guy in my 20s. I, a female roommate recently uh, moved out of my place and she accidentally left two pairs of underwear, I guess, next to the washing machine. And I don't know if I should call her and be like, or text her and be like, hey, you left your undies here. Come get them or. Or maybe I'll send him. That'd be weird. Is that too weird? I know like women's underwear can get cheap, right? Like that's just cheap. She seems like kind of squeamish about her underwear to begin with, so maybe it would be weird to to do that. All right, yeah, yeah. Don't question. I'm probably just gonna throw them in the trash and not tell her about it, and probably never talk to her again. So it's not a big deal. Women's underwear is that shit cheap? It is very cheap, and I think one of the great pleasures of life is buying new underwear. As a prissy person, and also somebody who grew up in not eating ass, one of the great pleasures of life is <laughs> is purchasing new undies to cover that ass. To cover that ass with fresh, clean undies. I mean, I grew up post-war England, and we didn't never had enough clean undies. And I think. Any excuse to buy new ones. I didn't think it was going in that direction. This call, I thought he had become was cramming the panties in his mouth and <laughs> masturbating wildly. I didn't realize he was just really genuinely being considerate. I think he's worried that she will assume that if he took note of her panties at all, that he she would think he was a perv. He's like she's left these panties there, and he doesn't even know how to talk about them because he's afraid he's going to be judged for having them as if he absconded with them or stole them out of the dryer or somehow implicated by his possession of her undergarments. And so the mistake he's making, I think, in his head when he thinks about talking to her about it is using the word panties. You're going to sound pervy if you call and say, you lost some of your panties because panties is such a horrible pervy word. You just say, you left some of your clothes behind at the apartment. You want them or not? I'll leave them in a bag on the porch. You can swing by and pick them up. Just throw the panties in the bag on the porch. How hard is that? Um, yeah, he's obviously got caught up in the pe- with the world of panties. I think he's a bit aroused by them. Yeah, I mean, I am, quite frankly. By panties. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good panty. Don't you find like a well-tailored panty on, on the right body? It's a thing of beauty. Speaking of men and men in panties, there's actually a website I've, I've written about in my, in my column. I'm not into like guys in panties, but I found this website. A crossdresser sent it to me. It's called xdress.com and it's uh, purveyors of fine lingerie for men, it says. Um, and it's basically panties for guys, for men's bodies, but panties. And I'm just curious about your professional – uh, ambassador at large for Barney's famous window dresser, famous in the front row at all the fashion shows during fashion week. What do you think? Um, I always find very feminine garments on men to be very um, amusing. 
like um, Jean-Paul Gaultier has often done frilly panties and peignoirs for men and stuff like that. I think that's funny. It doesn't preclude being super butch and wearing chaps if you want. It's all part of the um, – Well, what's interesting about these pictures that I'm showing Simon on – line is the is the tension between the frilly and femininity of the panties and these jacked ripped muscly bodies that they're they've been lacquered onto it's a compelling juxtaposition there's it, no two ways it about is it. we'd be able to lie down for just a minute yeah. now if that guy said would you please rim me what were you, you would say i have to get drunk first in a time machine back when i used to drink well i'm very devoted to my johnny i'm very old fashioned so i wouldn't th- you know and fortunately he he looks like that my johnny it's fantastic physique so no huh and i would i might buy him a pair of panties just to see if it, you know just for a laugh and then instagram it wildly it made me doubt my sexuality this website just seeing these guys in these panties made me think i could i would but it's the international mail remember international mail catalogs Ridiculous pirate shirts and dusters and horrifying clothes that looked good because the guys wearing them were so hot. Yeah, they could basically wear anything. Whereas <laughs> if I was wearing them, I'd look like Beverly Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who Beverly Leslie is. Um, he was uh, Leslie Jordan. He was the little guy in the cowboy hat on Will and Grace who was like this teensy, u- uber gay person. Pocket fag. Yeah. So quickly before, before you leave, because we have to let you go, because um, you have fashion things to do because it's urgently um, critique the outfits of the tech savvy at risk youth I often talk about their dreadlocks and their their dirty dungarees and just well, curious what your professional opinion is of, uh, of their outfits on my way here I, I was obviously filled with anticipation about the tech savvy at risk youth what were they going to wear because they knew I was coming and I assumed they'd been up half the night getting ready and dressing themselves. And they, I have to say they've exceeded my expectations. How so? Um, I see color. I see graphic prints, which are a trend this season. Studs. I mean, every single one of them has studded and crafted their, their um, Daisy Dukes or their cut-off jeans. Um, also, <laughs> um, there's been a liberal use of eye makeup. Which I'm a big fan of. You um, know, the glam rock era was very important for me. So yes, men wearing eye makeup, I think is courageous and daring. Gauntlets. How does tech savvy at risk youth even operate all these fancy the banks of machines and dials and they're wearing these studded medieval gauntlets? So maybe some of them are into falconry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Simon Doonan, creative ambassador at large for Barney's New York, author of six books, columnist for Slate, uh, his new book, The Asylum, a collage of couture reminiscences and hysteria is out now on Blue Binder Press. Thank you so much for coming in here today and chatting with me. Thank you for having me. I'm going to have to lie in a darkened room and think about panties and rimming. <laughs> and I'm going to have to lie in a dark room and think about suits and ties. <laughs> we, but we all have our anxieties and our triggers. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female um, living in a really small town, and I recently went on a date with a really, really awesome guy. He was really sexy and nerdy, loves his family, and we had a lot in common, and we really hit it off. And the date lasted about two hours. I barely needed to touch my drink because I was having so much fun. And he had a great time, too, and it seemed like he was really, really attracted to me. And he asked me if the next day was too soon to see me again. And I was like, well, yeah, but screw it. I want to do this. So we agreed to see each other again the next day. And the next day I get a call. 
something came up at work. He had an emergency. I had to work late, and he wanted to um, reschedule. So we rescheduled. All was good. We chatted every day back and forth up until uh, the two days before we were supposed to uh, meet up and I had given him a call just to say hi and you know he didn't answer no big deal the next day I called him to say you know there's something going on downtown it looks really awesome do you want to go check it out with me and he never responded and he also never called me about the date that he had set up with me and at that point I felt like I had already put myself out there enough and didn't want to seem desperate so I um, just left it at that. Well, I did message him. I messaged him on Facebook and basically was just trying to play it off. I was like, you know, oh, the irony of being stood up by a seemingly stand-up guy. Ouch. And then uh, kind of semi-obsessively checked back on that message uh, enough to where I decided that I needed to unfriend him so that I could just move past it and just get over it. And I still can't stop thinking about him. And I'm wondering if my reaction was um, too harsh, if I did the right thing. And I'm also wondering, um, since it's such a small town, if I were to run into him again, um, what should my reaction be? I don't know. What if he stood you up because his mother died? And then on top of that, he gets a bitchy message from somebody he doesn't know that well and he's sort of been texting with and he was distracted because his house burned down or his mother died or some shit hit the fan at work. And you know, arguably what he had done, sort of neglecting your messages and standing up in the day, was uh, objectively kind of rude and sloppy. But some bigger thing had happened uh, to him that just made him sort of look at your – kind of snarky message and think, oh, I don't need one more person in my life right now who's going to be faulting me for not perfectly executing my social media strategies or my dating strategies. And so he just kind of walked, giving him the benefit of the doubt here because you say you're hung up on him. That's why I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. And giving him the benefit of the doubt is what you're going to need to do when you run into him again in your small town if indeed you are still kind of hung up on him and wish that you could date him. Is that the next time you see him, when you run into him, smile, wave, go up to him and say, hey, how you doing? And then let it happen. Either he's going to say, oh, hey, I'm really sorry that kind of dropped the ball. How are you? And you guys will reconnect and you'll see that there is something there. Or he'll look at you like, you know what? The, the message I was sending was that I wasn't interested. For whatever reason, maybe somebody else came along. Maybe he was dating two people at once and he picked her and did that fadeaway thing that women do according to Garfunkel and Oates, but also men can do too. They just stop answering. So maybe he stopped answering because he was dating somebody else who was getting more serious with her and he picked her over you and now he's with her and they're going to get married and have kids. Or maybe he picked somebody over you and now realizes it was a terrible mistake and he should have picked you and you were nicer even if you had that little kind of tantrumy moment online and he'll take the opportunity of running into you again to ask you out again and to apologize for dropping the ball in the first place. So give him the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best. And when you run into him, be pleasant, be kind, be breezy and see what happens. And if you never hear from him again after that, let it go. Let it go. You are actually thinking about this too much. And I have now talked about it too much. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old bi guy with a question about coming out. 
I recently got into a relationship with this really awesome guy, and it kind of made me realize that I am indeed bisexual, and I should probably get around to coming out to my family. But um, I'm having a hard time finding any advice on how to do it, because I think there's some additional questions that are asked when you're bisexual, kind of regarding like, well, you could choose to just date women, why don't you do that? And really, all the information I've found hasn't been how to come out as bi, it's been if you should. So I was wondering if you could speak to, you know, some of the questions that might be asked of someone who's coming out as bisexual and, and good ways to answer that or any resources I could go to. Joining us by phone from Boston, Ellen Rudstrom. She's the president of the Bisexual Resource Center, the oldest national bisexual organization in the United States. It exists to raise awareness about bisexuality to the LGBT and straight communities and creates resources and provides support for bisexual people. Uh, thanks for jumping on the phone today, Ellen. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me. Where can bisexuals find the coming out advice that they need? Um, well, there are definitely um, some good online resources. There are also some great books. And one thing I did want to mention, because online resources are so important for everyone now, um, and especially uh, I think the LGBT community has really benefited by having so many online resources. But something you may or may not know is that uh, Google actually blocks the word bisexual. Um, wait, from wait, what? Yes, I bet you didn't know that. Um, they actually block it um, in terms of, you know, when you get the instant results. Uh-huh. Um, so as soon as you start typing it, and you can, you can do this at home, folks. Um, start typing B-I-S-E, and as soon as you get to X, the instant search disappears. And so, you, so when, you're, when you're searching for it, let's say you, were, you, were, you just came out to yourself or to someone else, and you said, wow, I really need more resources. And so you go in and you start typing bisexual resources, and it disappears in terms of any of the instant things. So what I, t- what I would tell anyone, if you're searching for bisexual resources online, make sure you hit return. So then you'll get Google will search for you. You, it will search for you ultimately. I just did it. I just opened Google and I started to type in bisexual. When I had B-I-S, it was giving me instant returns. And then I got to E and it was some – and then X and everything disappeared. Uh, so disappeared. What you, which is very weird. But if you continue to type bisexual and then you hit return, you do get results. So just don't forget how to spell exactly. bisexual halfway through and you can still find shit on Google. But it's very weird that the instant returns disappear. Exactly. And that's important to do. Just – just hit return because some techie people tell me that apparently only a low percentage of people actually hit return if they don't see something coming up in instant research. So. Is this evidence of biphobia at Google? What the fuck is going on there? <laughs> well, yes, because um, you may know that they used to block the words lesbian and gay. Mm-hmm. That was taken care of years ago. Um, so yeah, they do pick and choose certain words that they feel are inappropriate. But anyway, huh. that's my that's my that's my tip for anyone looking. F- and for anyone out there from Google who is listening, and I know a bunch of uh, LGBT folks from Google do listen. Can you get on that, please? If you could fix that for gay and lesbian, could you fix that for bisexual, please? Um, I wanted to excellent. Thank the, you, Dan. The caller suggests that there are questions that bisexual people are asked when they're coming out that gay or lesbian people are not asked. Do you think that's true? And if so, what are those questions? I do think it's true. A couple of things happen very often to bisexual people when they come out is um, often they're asked to prove it. 
in the sense, like if, 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 I don't know if this happened to you, Jan, if you came out as gay and anybody ever said to you, really? Oh, come on. Yes, I heard that. I heard that a lot. Okay. I heard, okay. Are, are, are you sure you've never been in a real serious relationship with a woman? How can you know? Okay. I heard all of that. Well, that, that, that happens a lot to bad people in the sense of, okay, the, have you, have you had either emotional relationships with both sexes or, um, have you had sexual relationships with both sexes as if that's the ultimate proof? that you're bisexual. That can be a little disconcerting, especially for people who have not had that experience yet. But they feel for themselves that they, they've understood something about themselves. And I know you often talk about how, you know, younger people are, are trying to figure it out. And, you know, they may not have had the experience, but, but they know what they feel. They mm-hmm. know what they're going through, and they're trying to find, figure that out for themselves. Mm-hmm. Another thing that bisexuals, oddly sort of um, come up against is after you, when you come out as bisexual, people then say, you know, assume that you're closeted even after you've just come out to them. And again, like a gay or a lesbian person, when, once they've come out, nobody considers them in the closet, mm-hmm. but a bisexual person often, when you come out as bi, I've marched in, in, uh, in the LGBT pride parades. And there have been people who, from the sidelines, have said, hey, when are you going to come out? And I'm walking <laughs> in a pride parade. And I'm like, wow, that's a really... One question I've heard put to bisexual people that I don't think is put to gay and lesbian people or couldn't be put to gays or lesbians uh, is bisexuals in opposite-sex relationships, committed opposite-sex relationships, going for the long-term sort of thing. Uh, will sometimes be asked when they do come out as bi, and I think it's really important. I've said I like bisexual people. I wish there were a whole lot more of them out there in the world yep. who are out. But uh, sometimes bisexual people in opposite-sex relationships, when they come out to their families, are uh, the question is, why did you feel you had to do that? Since you're in an opposite-sex relationship and you're in a monogamous opposite-sex relationship, did I need to know you were bisexual? That seems to be the right. question that I think is most sort of likely to be put to a bisexual one is unique to the, unique to the bisexual experience. And, and, what's, and what, what is the answer to that question that, that, that you would recommend that a bi person in a committed opposite sex relationship should give to their friends and family, coworkers, neighbors when they come out as bi, which they should do? Um, because it, re- it is about being true to yourself and, and having people understand who you are. Um, I, I think we, you know, especially gay and lesbian people, I think should be able to understand that, that if you can't be open with people about your true identity and Mm -hmm. what you know about yourself with the closest people in your lives, if you can't be open about that, then there's something missing for you. Um, And so you always, there's a part of you that that wants to connect with people. um, And so coming out to them as bi um, even when you're in a monogamous relationship, it's an important step for you within your self-identity. Um, and I wanted to say that because I think I, lo- I love it when you now say, I want more people to come out, more bi people to come out. And I agree with you. Um, I think you and I probably just differ a little bit in that I want them to come out when they feel safe, when they feel validated, and when they feel valued. Okay, well, wait, 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 wait. Can I just throw out there that when I was 15, 16, 17 coming out, I didn't feel safe, I didn't feel validated, and I didn't feel valued, and I did it anyway. Sure. And, and you know, and I've been out for 
30, almost 30 years. I just, and, you know, I did, I, and I took the chance, too. Good for but you. There are a lot of repercussions that can happen Absolutely. to buy people that are really harsh. And one of the reasons is because I think our culture has been very good, um, thank God, about opening up and changing their views about gay and lesbian people. I'm with you. I'm with you. I really am, and I am on your side. But the culture opened up and changed for gay and lesbian people because gay and lesbian people were coming out. It wasn't like there was its opening in this change and then gay and lesbian people come out. So what I hear you saying is the world needs to be, make itself a safer place for bi people to be, be out, and then bi people will be out. And what I'm saying is uh, that's not how it worked for us, for, for people who are gay or lesbian, that it w- required the coming out first to change the world. The world didn't change, and then we came out. I agree. I agree. And, and I am so thankful for all the gay, lesbian, and bisexual and transgender people over the years who paved the way for us to be as comfortable as we are right now and having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been bi people all along the way. Um, I, there have been, and I well. agree with that. But, you know, there was just that study, that, that Pew Institute study, that showed that I think it was 72 or 78% of people who are gay and lesbian are out to their friends, families, coworkers, neighbors, but only, I think it was 24% or 22% of bisexually identified people are out to their friends, families, coworkers, and neighbors. Right, it was a little higher than that, but yes, it's a remarkable difference. And, and it I does think seem we like need a, to look at that. It, there's a chicken and an egg problem here, because what, I, what you hear from some bisexual folks is fewer bisexual people are out because of the hostility to directed at bi people from the straight and gay lesbian communities. And I acknowledge that that's a real thing. I just wrote a huge chapter yep. about it in my new book and to owning my, my part of it. But, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. Like people aren't out because of the hostility, but the hostility persists because people aren't out. Yep. But also the hostility continues. Wouldn't it, I think part of the great thing about the gay and lesbian community has been the way it has also bonded together to help the people who have been closeted to feel the safety of coming out. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Dan, if more of the gay and lesbian community reinforce a positive bi identity? And wouldn't it be great if we felt that we could come out in more LGBT spaces and that we could get the support that we need from, our, from the community that we feel is our community? And we don't feel that, Dan. We don't always feel that. And so that would be wonderful if the, if the lesbian gay community made it an important part of their community outreach to make sure that they were making it a safer, more valued experience for bi people to come out. I think that would be a great thing for the community to put itself behind. I think that's a great thing, too. I think that's happening more and more. Uh, but I, I think you know the hostility that, that may float around out there can't be a fig leaf. It can't be an excuse for not pe- for, for people lying about who they are, for people not just being out. To say that, you know, just, I guess I take it a little personally because when I was, you know, coming out in the early 1980s to my Catholic mom and dad into the teeth of the AIDS crisis and the Reagan administration, I didn't feel a lot of love, support, validation, safety, anything. Sure. I felt a lot of sure. I felt a lot of squat and I felt a lot of violence and I felt a lot of danger and risk and it felt very right. precarious, but I fucking did it anyway. So when I meet people who are you know, in their thirties who are bi and it's now who turn around and tell me that it's my fault or the gay community's fault or the straight community's fault that they're not out as bi because they get their feelings hurt. I, I, you know, part of me just like flashes back on 16 year old me and thinks, fuck you. 
Like, stop, stop whining and be out. Yeah, it's not just about getting your feelings hurt. Um, it's, if you've looked at the statistics um, of the bi community, when they actually break out the statistics so that you can see gay, lesbian, bi, and, and some studies trans, mm. um, and you can see the differences in the communities, you can see the disparities that are going on, and you can see that the bisexual community is suffering a great deal um, with the high suicidality rate, high rates of depression, um, high, there are many things that, that our, our community is suffering from on health and mental health issues mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we're not just living it up um, in our... I, know, in our I, didn't, whoa, I didn't say bi people weren't suffering. I didn't say there weren't issues. I didn't say that it was a cakewalk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. But, but we are, are, and especially, you know, the, the, the organizations such as the Bisexual Resource Center mm-hmm. and the other great organizations around the country we are working to hopefully make it that safer, more valued space for bi people to to have that feeling because it's important to us. We're working to do that. That's why we're at the White House yesterday. And congratulations on that. At Thank the White you. House on Bi, bi Visibility Day, is that the, the name of the day? Uh, yeah, it, it, we, uh, people call it different things, Bi Pride Day, Celebrate Bisexuality Day. There were 33 bi activists from around the country in the White House yesterday, um, impressing the administration that, you know, there there are really important issues that our community needs addressed to help us. And um, it was a big historic moment for our community. So I'm on I'm okay, on a so bisexual that- high still, so. <laughs> Bisexual highs are my favorite kind. Um, so just quickly, you know, you're talking about making the world safer for people to be buying out, to make people feel better about being buying out. Let's make this guy feel better about being buying out, this caller. Yeah, I want to give him some resources. Um, one of the books, uh, the, we have actually a brochure um, that we have on uh, books on bisexuality, an annotated listing. They can find it on our website at buyresource.net. And one of the books that I'd love to point out to this guy is Buy Men coming out every which way. And when I heard his call, you know, I, would, I really just wanted to, like, congratulate him on coming out. Um, it sounds like he found this great guy. He's so happy about finding this wonderful relationship. And, and now he's ready to, to come out. And so it was really great to hear it in his voice. So I hope that, you know, there are resources. There's also a great book called Getting By, Voices of Bisexuals Around the World that will give him the opportunity to read about so many different perspectives. And this is an international anthology, so people around the world talking about coming out as bi. And one of the suggestions I would would say to this guy when you're coming out to people is make sure you have the time to just talk to that person about what it means to you to be bisexual. What, What does it mean? Because it really doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. And just take that time to really let your friends, your family know what it means to you and how you came to it, that understanding for yourself. Um, I think that's really important because there's so many misconceptions out there in the media. And so if you just say, oh, I just want to tell you that I'm bisexual and leave it at that, whoa, um, uh, those misconceptions and stereotypes could really make that person think, you know, they, they won't understand you. You need to tell them what it means to you. Ellen Ruthstrom, president of the Bisexual Resource Center. You can find the Bisexual Resource Center online at buyresource.net. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. That was a fun discussion. You bet. Thank you, Dan. Hi, I am a bisexual woman calling from California. My question 
is about being out as a bisexual woman that's married to a man. I have no problem with this, you know, in my social life. Um, I'm out. The question is about at work. There just doesn't usually seem to be a natural way to be out. I work in the education world, and it's not appropriate to be talking about your sex life. If I was with a woman, then I could be talking about my girlfriend or my wife, and I could be out because I was just talking about my life, not specifically my sex life, but because I'm married to a man, you know, that doesn't really happen. Um, I don't really care if people assume assume I'm straight. I don't really have a thing about that. It's more just you know, like I was listening to your show a few back, and I agree with you that it's just important to be out, and it really helps the community. I think we've made a lot of progress by people being out and knowing people that are out, and then it doesn't seem so scary. Um, but I just want to make sure that it's appropriate. I don't think it helps the community if I'm talking about sexuality inappropriately at work. Let's think for a second about how people come out at work as straight. They don't march around the office introducing themselves and saying I'm heterosexual. They don't, uh, you know, have a tearful all office meeting in a conference room where the, the straight people all come out. And the straight people don't have to come out because heterosexuality is the default uh, assumption when you meet somebody. Ninety plus percent of everyone is straight and sort of just natural and uh, not irrational. Just assume people are straight until they tell you differently. But when you think about it, how does somebody really communicate to you that they are in fact straight? It just comes up in conversation, incidentally, in conversation. The mention of a girlfriend, the mention of a wife, the mention of a husband, the mention of a boyfriend. Uh, People aren't shy about saying, oh, I've got a date, some guy at work. Oh, I've got a date with this woman I met at a concert. We're going out and she's awesome. That's how that person may have just come out to you as heterosexual, right? Doesn't have to push against uh, an assumption that he's homosexual, isn't sort of swimming against that current, but straight people come out all the time. They just come out effortlessly and thoughtlessly without a worry or care in the world about it because they really don't have a worry or care in the world about it. A lot of people who are gay or lesbian now feel comfortable enough in their workplaces and their neighborhoods to come out in sort of the same way. Oh, you know, you move on to a new block and you're doing something in the yard and the neighbor comes over and you say, oh, my husband is inside. I'll go get him. People are coming out kind of the same way now who are gay. Like a guy could say that to his new neighbor. Um, but how do you come out as bi when you're in an opposite sex relationship? When you don't, you know, you come out by incidentally in the same sort of casual way. You're going to mention your husband and you don't want to then say, asterisk, asterisk, I've had girlfriends before or, you know, I'm, I could have had a wife and come out as bi because that will feel like you're making this sort of strained effort to broadcast, you know, this information about you that is relevant, that you would like people to know, that something about you would like to be known. And I think the challenge for you then, if you don't want to feel like you're talking about your sex life, you don't feel like you're being just kind of weird and strained about it, is to come out as bi in the same way that that guy who mentioned the girl at the concert just came out as straight. Incidentally, in conversation, at an appropriate time when it just sort of naturally flows. And this is talking about coworkers, talking about a work situation. You are proactively out to your friends. You are proactively out to your family. That is crucial and important and good on you for doing that. We're just talking about casual convo at work, right? So if somebody mentions their ex and they roll their eyes and share some story about their horrible ex, if you have a horrible lesbian ex, and it seems that almost all bisexual women do, you can mention your horrible ex who happens to be a lady. Oh yeah, I dated this woman once in college. She was awful. 
and share a similar anecdote. Or if someone's talking at work about a movie star that they have a crush on, say some of the guys at work are mentioning some lady, some movie star lady, I can't even think of a name right now, uh, that they have a crush on movie star lady. You can mention that, oh, you too have a crush on that movie star lady. And if they look at you, go, yeah, I guess uh, there's more to me than you thought. Just because I'm in a straight relationship doesn't mean I'm, in a, I'm a straight person. That you can, you can do it casually and in the flow of natural workplace interactions. That's how it will feel like you're not going out of your way to introduce sex or sexuality uh, or rub people's noses in something they don't need to know. They don't need to know it, but it won't hurt them to know it, and you shouldn't have to cover it up. And if you want to be by and out at work, you should be. And you can out yourself in the same casual, conversational, incidental way that straight people out themselves every day. Hi, Dan. My name is Sarah. I'm a 34-year-old woman, recently single after having been in a six-plus-year relationship with a man. I've only ever dated men and have dated actively since breaking up with my ex-boyfriend almost a year ago. Recently, though, I've become very close to a female co-worker of mine who identifies lesbian but feels no connection to being a female and personally feels more male than female. We've been spending a lot of time together and have developed a really close emotional connection that became physical in the last few weeks. I feel closer to her than I have to anyone in years and while we haven't had sex. I'm very attracted to her, and sex feels imminent and inevitable. I've never had sex with, or actual sex with a woman, though I have casually made out with friends of mine as a joke. She mostly tends to date straight or bi women, and I don't feel like I'm attracted to other women. It's just that I feel a really strong pull towards her. My question is, what is the track record behind these kinds of connections? It feels very real to me, yet seems like it would be unsustainable in the long game. Is there a deeper psychology at play that I'm not in tune with? I feel so carried away by lust and emotion that I wonder if there's something very practical to this situation that I'm missing. Do you have any advice for a newbie straight girl about to enter the world of lady sex, especially if I might be conflating love with lust? Thank you for calling me. Oh, it's uh, nice to chat with you on the phone. When you called and recorded your question, you felt that lady sex was imminent. Has uh, lady sex commenced? No, it hasn't. Does it still feel imminent? It's, I don't know if it says, yeah, yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> I just don't have a timeline. <laughs> uh, well, I do because I, 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 I have a show to do. So let's get right to it. Let's get right to your question. Um, the, 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 the assumption that seems to underlie all of your anxiety and inform your question is this idea that, you know, this relationship is very different for you. You've never been in a relationship with a woman before, this lesbian coworker who sounds very masculine, which is probably, you know, part of what you've clicked into about her, probably what attracts you to her is that her masculinity works for you, uh, on that level. Yeah. Like some of the same things you found attractive about past boyfriends, you also sort of perceive and draw in, in her and they draw you to her. Um, but, but the assumption that sort of undergirds your whole dilemma is, you know, it's new, new ground for you, new ground for her. So the, the odds perhaps of this working out over the long term seem potentially slim. And that just accepts the, you know, the, the, the premise that there's no value for you or her or anyone else in a short term relationship. What if you guys are only together three months or six months or a year? 
But in that time, you have a wonderful time together. You learn and grow. You, you enjoy new and different sexual experiences. And what if it doesn't work out long term? So what? Right. Can, you know, um, I, I, I look back. I look back over my life, and I, I I can pick out several very short-term relationships: six weeks, you know, uh, six months, a year, that helped make me the person that I am, socially, sexually. And I think of those relationships. Uh, I, I I remember them fondly. Uh, the, the guys that I was in those relationships with are some of my closest friends, and there was real value there. And I just want to challenge this assumption that there can never be value or growth in a relationship if it's short-term. Right. Yeah, I just didn't, I think my concern was that I didn't want to be um, irresponsible because I'm sort of flying blind, so I wouldn't, you know, want to set up a promise that I couldn't follow through on, like, because I don't have any past experience mm-hmm. to to reflect on. Well, then you, you, the only way you control for that, and, and any relationship, even if, you know, on paper it looks like you two are perfect for each other and, uh, it, you know, two people out there, it looks like they're perfect for each other and on paper it looks like the ideal match, you know, every new relationship could be long-term, could be short-term, and, and in fact is much likelier to be short-term. Most of us who are in long-term relationships were in a lot of short-term relationships first. Most relationships we're in over our life uh, are going to be short-term relationships. So I think the trick is to say to her, "This is new. This is new for me, and I'm totally willing to to go there. And I really, really like you. Um, but this is new for yeah. me, and and I, I can't assure you now in advance that I'm going to be with you for 50 years. But I couldn't assure you of that if you were a man, and I was this into you. Definitely." I guess I just wonder, like, mm, what if the logistics don't <laughs> What if the <what> <laughs> sex doesn't work for you? Well, that's what then you discovered in that relationship. That's what you learned about yourself in yeah. that relationship. And she has to know going in that that's a risk, you know, an emotional sexual right. risk for her is that she's the first woman that you're ever going to be with. And you don't know if lady sex is going to be what you want for the rest of your life. Yeah. And what you may discover with her is that it isn't. But what you may discover is that it is. <laughs> right. There's equal possibility right. for that as well. I uh, have an open mind about that, too. And then, you know, I guess it's just because everything seems so weighted towards... Um, it sounds like you're doing that thing that sex. some people do where you want... You, you feel like you're being a bad potential partner by not controlling for the emotional risks that she is going to be taking by getting into this relationship with you. Yeah. She has a right to take risks to get into a relationship with you as you are taking a risk to be in a relationship with her. And you right. don't, you, you, it's not your job to rubber coat the relationship in the room and make it perfectly a hundred percent safe for her before you let her leap. You're, you're taking a leap. Let her take a leap. You could get hurt. She could get hurt. That applies to every relationship that's ever been entered into right. by anyone anywhere through all of recorded human history and unrecorded human history. It's yes, true. And I, you know, in the case that it doesn't work that I, I wouldn't want to, I guess I would really want to be sensitive in the way that I express that so that it doesn't seem like I'm rejecting that way of doing things. <laughs> you know, um, what? I don't think you are capable of being insensitive. Really? Yeah, from the way you're hashing this out and thinking it through and 
you know, putting yourself on the rack about it. I don't think you are capable of insensitivity as you enter into this relationship with her. Right. I just, uh, yeah, I just want to be careful and I don't want this to seem like, oh, it's just a thing I'm trying or. But it is a thing. Wait, wait, wait. But it is a thing you're trying. Yeah, but not just for the hell of it, you know? Right. Absolutely. And you're, you're trying it because of, because you're making an exception for her because she's exceptional. And then you'll see where it goes. And yeah. she knows that's what you're doing because you haven't pretended – you haven't lied to her and said that you've been in lesbian relationships in the past or that you're bi or lesbian identified even. She knows you're – up to this point in your life, you've been a straight lady, right? Exactly, yes. And, and so she's aware that you're growing in a, in a way and this is, a, this is an experiment for you. And if she doesn't want to be experimented upon, then she knows not to date you. And she has to take some responsibility for her choice to date you. As long as you guys are having these kinds of conversations, as long as you're saying this all to her and, and, and it's registering and she's saying things back to you about how she's feeling about where you're going, go for it. Get your pussy. Need her pussy. Jump into lesbian <laughs> sex. Get a strap on. Give it a whirl. <laughs> I'll have to figure out what that all looks like. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Go to Bayblend.com and SmittenKitten.com, I think. There's plenty of places where you can go online uh, to check out what lesbian sex looks like. Just, just for a preview? Just for a preview. <laughs> but but you, don't, you know what? Don't, actually, you don't even need to do that. Just instead of going to see what lesbian sex looks like and then you know, approach her as if you're going to have some sort of archetypical lesbian sex with her, why don't you just have sex with her? Why don't you just gradually baby steps become intimate with this woman if you're attracted to her and she works for you and she's the exception they may, the exception that may ultimately prove to you that it's a woman that you want to be with there's a lot of women out there in long-term lesbian relationships who were in the position that you are in right now once upon a time yeah i would imagine so you know because i my attraction to people always starts as emotion and um, the rest of it follows. So not that I'm undiscerning, but it could really be anybody that I ultimately fall for. How long have you guys been dancing around each other? Oh, I guess like oh, a couple months. Time for at least a massive makeout session and a sleepover. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm up for it. I'm up for that. Good luck. Hey, Dan. Two friends of mine recently met for the first time, and shortly after being introduced, one started complaining to the other about her brief relationship with me. Afterwards, the first woman, the one who had her ear chewed off, contacted me online to give me a heads up that I was being bad now. Now, I'll admit the relationship was not stellar. Sexually, things did not go well. I had my first taste of ED. I was anything but GGG. And instead of ripping off the Band-Aid, as you've suggested many times, I did the Garfunkel and Oates fade away. Shortly after things ended, I received a letter from this woman stating it was just as well as she was seeing another guy anyway, and I don't know whether that was true or just meant to try and get back to me, but here's the kicker, Dan. All this happened 25 years ago, and she's still talking about it. Now, in those 25 years, we've actually remained cordial. We're on each other's Facebook friends list and have never discussed it. A couple years after that relationship ended, I met the woman who was to become my wife, who incidentally was warned to stay away from me at the time by this woman and her cousin. And now my wife and I are in our 18th year of monogamish marriage where she gets to be her kinky BBW self, and I get to be my bisexual bear self. Happy, happy, joy, joy. So why am I calling? Well, 
on the one hand, I don't like someone talking bad about me when I'm no longer that 20-something uninformed jerk that I was back then. And on the other, if she's still talking about it, is it possible the relationship had more of an impact than I thought? I mean, do I owe her some closure? Who's the crazy one, Dan? Me for being bothered by this, her for holding on to it, or both of us for not being adults and just talking about it, even though it's a quarter century later. I don't know whether to let it go, apologize for my naivete, or tell her to get over it. Help, Dan. I really could use a slap upside the head. You lay out three choices. Let it go, apologize for it, tell her to get over it. As if these are somehow mutually exclusive. As if they... You can only do one of these three things. You can do all of these three things. You can call her and say, you know, it's weird and it makes you look a little crazy that you're still sort of bitching about, you know, the, the brief time that we dated 25 years ago when we were basically kids. Um, but, you know, obviously you're still hurting, I guess, and I just wanted to you know, reach out to you and apologize uh, for it because, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. And you know, a lot of people hurt each other in their 20s and then they move on and get over it. Uh, and then I would tell her to get the fuck over it and, and sneakily emphasize that she's the one who looks kind of crazy and vindictive and nuts that she's still talking about this 25 years later. And then I would let it go. You can do all three of those things. You can do all three of those things in one brief phone call. Hi, Dan. Um, I've got a response to podcast 361. And the woman who found a dirty talk, a turn-off, um, my partner and I are in the same position, and I've got a few bits of advice for her, uh, because we've managed to find a compromise. The first is that I focus on my partner getting turned on by the dirty talk. So while I find the dirty talk really distracting, seeing him so turned on makes me turned on. And also, we only have dirty talk every two or three times that we have sex. So we make sure that there are times when... I get to go into my own head and we don't do dirty talk. And also, one of the things I found really distracting was him asking me questions because then I had to be creative. And so I'd say to your caller to get their partner to ask them questions and then they can just answer with a, uh, yes, that would turn me on or no, I'd rather do this. And then they can stay in their own head instead of having to produce the dirty talk. Hope that helps. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you to Simon Doonan for dropping by the Savage Lovecast Studios today to record with us. And also thanks for jumping on the phone to Ellen Ruthstrom, president of the Bisexual Resource Center. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Someone else you should be following on Twitter, Simon Doonan, our guest this week on the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, writer, bon vivant, fashion commentator, and hilarious on Twitter. And you can follow him at Simon Doonan. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.